You're listening to the Scattered Seeds Podcast, where every life has a story. To hear somebody's story and to hear how the story of Christ and the gospel intersects with somebody's life so that their story is taken up into the story of Christ. There's no better story to hear. It's powerful when God has brought you through something, because not only can you go, this is what God has brought me through, maybe it can touch that one person. I was a week away from leaving my career in the media and about to embark on the communications job, which I now occupy here at the church. Never underestimate the sovereignty of God. In 1791, a document was drafted that was added to the main body of the Constitution. It was the Bill of Rights, and its adoption limited the powers that the federal government and even the states had in curtailing the rights of the citizens of this nation. It is made up of the first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution and guarantees that the government cannot force anyone to follow one particular religion or curtail anyone from practicing their faith. The government can't stop free speech either. And there are no caveats stating things like freedom of speech is guaranteed unless it makes someone feel uncomfortable, or religion is to be freely practiced but only in the private sphere. So why is it the Christians are having to fight to protect their rights to speak about their faith, or even to make personal and business decisions that are in line with what their word of God says? This month, our nation celebrates its 245th birthday. So we here at the Scattered Seeds podcast decided to do something a little out of our norm in declaring July Faith and Freedom Month. We've lined up two unique shows with guests from the Alliance Defending Freedom who came on to talk to us about a few very pivotal Supreme Court cases, as well as a few other legal matters that we felt that the church at large should know about. Today's guest is Travis Barham, Grove City graduate and part of the legal team who represented Chike Uzigbunum, the young man whose college restricted his right to share his faith on campus. So join Tom, Nate, and Travis as they discuss the case, the Supreme Court decision, and a little about why Travis decided to make a career out of defending faith and freedom. But first, a short word from our sponsors. A past guest in our show, Dr. Carl Truman, recently did a series of video lectures on the life of the mind at Grove City College. Dr. Truman is a well-known Reformation historian, author, and professor of biblical and religious studies. You may subscribe to and access great lectures from the Grove at the Grove City College YouTube channel. And now for this week's episode, welcome back to the Scattered Seeds Podcast, where every life has a story. All righty, Tom. We are endeavoring on a couple of podcasts here that are a little bit against type. We normally have interviews with guests that are testimonial and give opportunity for our guests to share the way in which God has been active in their lives and they give us their story right every life has a story right tom that's right Nate. <laughs> there's nothing greater than hearing how god intersects with the story of one's life and how god powerfully and oftentimes so, miraculously changes a life. yeah so we're waiting a little bit more into the public sphere right right now because we have become increasingly convinced of the pollution of our age. Yeah. I wrote a paper for a Grove City conference, their Vision and Values conference. It was the year after Obergefell versus Hodges. That was a Supreme Court decision that legalized mm-hmm. gay marriage. 
one of the things I did is I went to the Pointer Institute, which is an organization in journalism where they collect front pages. Yep. And I looked at the front pages from the next day from that decision from all 50 states because yep. they do it that way. Journalists classically are supposed to have an objectivity that they brought to how they view events. Right. And I, I couldn't believe that the news pages invariably, I think it was in 40 of the 50 front pages, used the exact language of the gay rights advocacy mm-hmm. in their coverage. Yeah. Love wins. Sure. It suddenly dawned on me that the news media was in the bag for one outcome. It had its fingers yep. tilted on one side of the scale versus the other. And that, I think, was a really important kind of moment for me, awakening. Yeah. Yep. Because, of course, I was a Christian then, but I didn't really understand the terms of the war. And that may sound like loaded language, but we are in a culture war. Not only is America changing, but it's changing in a way that is showing great hostility to traditional Christian values and traditional Christian faith. Yeah, And it wasn't just the news terrain, it was also how... Mm-hmm. social media had right. led that change. Right. And social media, you know, it's only been around since essentially 2007 because that's when the iPhone came into being. Right. The change that it has wrought in the landscape. The acceleration of change. The acceleration yeah. of change in the landscape mm-hmm. in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. It's beyond belief. Right. I was looking at that article I shared in, in one of the pieces I wrote for us. Gallup had been asking this question are you a member of a church right, or a synagogue or a mosque? Mm-hmm. And 1934 until 1999, it was Flat. a bedrock baseline of 70%. Right. And then in the 21st century, the thing has cratered to a point where now it's below 50%. Right. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that that tracks with social media right. and the introduction of the iPhone, just like the introduction of the iPhone pushed public acceptance and perception of gay rights. Not to lay everything at the feet of iPhone, but they do mark the well, iPhone that, yeah, as at a pivotal moment. Yeah, and, that's and, the beginning, 2007. And there's some additional things. So the, whole, the Gallup poll on church association, you can see the flip there. Also, teen suicide went through the roof. If you're asking questions, what connects all those things? In part, it's the technology It's social media, but you have to dial it in a bit more. It has to do with mediation, the issue of mediating truth. I was uh, recently reading David Wells' celebrated book. It's actually dated in 1994 called No Place for Truth. And he's talking about the loss of evangelical theology. And he's asking the question of what is the church's role in professing the truth and this increasing loss of the church's ability or willingness to stand on truth, doctrine. The church is is foregoing its mediatorial responsibility as a conveyor of truth. The church has been supplanted by Facebook and Instagram. He saw this in the 90s when he saw not so much social media, but the abdication of the church is a place to speak truth for church growth models. Right. And never before have you had in the United States churches that would boast 
tens of thousands of people in membership. You are at the height of the church growth movement, but right. you're at an all-time low in terms of the church having any kind of impact on the culture, on the sense and sensibilities of Americans. Right. I mean, people are, are leaving the faith in droves. Right. And, and it's because I think that the church has foregone its responsibility to be truth tellers, to right. be a yeah. mediator of the well, truth. The very thing that the news media became guilty of. Right. Right. And then secondly, and, and one of the reasons why we're doing an episode like this. Two of them. Uh, right. Two of them is I've been asking myself, what is the political dimensions of the church? And I've been asking that coming out of what we'll call the, the post-Trump era, where, I mean, politics has always been crazy, but it went super crazy over the last four years with, with Trump. What I mean by crazy is it got incredibly charged. Right. We all felt it all over the place. And people, they drew lines and they, they covied up and, and grenades started to be launched. And I think in the midst of all that was deep down in many people's minds and hearts on both sides was a desire to try to be a place or a, a community that was going to communicate some kind of truth. Within that larger dialogue, the church exists. Our church and any other church in the world does not hover two feet above the ground. We are firmly attached to and on the earth, and we're on the earth as God's first fruit and foretaste of the kingdom of God. God has invested the gospel, the spirit, the word into the church, and we are called to be the light, salt, and leaven of the kingdom of God now. So as I've been thinking about the political dimension of the church, I'm not thinking about Republicans and Democrats and Biden or right. Trump or anything like that, right. but what role does the church have in the public discourse right. or in the public domain? One of the things that the church has adopted in the last 50 years that is a, a real problem and I think has been one of the elements that has caused the acceleration of a lot of things that we're seeing is Christians have assumed that our faith is a privately held belief and that issues of truth or affirmations of truth that have to be held publicly have to be by necessity secular. So you have public truth and you have private belief and your private belief can be your confession in the scriptures, your, your belief in Jesus. But we've created this hard dichotomy and division between public truth and private belief. Right. And that has only, I think, gotten worse as time has gone on. Right. To accept that dichotomy is a problem. Right. And it, it causes us to miss what is the political dimension or the public dimension of the church. And so I've been helped in thinking about this by reading one of my favorite authors, a fellow by the name of Leslie Newbigin. He was committed to trying to answer the question, how can the West be reconverted? How do we bring the West back? Right. I mean, he saw this 30, 40 years ago, and we haven't done anything to, to begin to, to pull back from the sharp decline that he anticipated and now we're living in. He was one of the guys who, back in the 70s and the 80s, although this book that I'm going to refer to, it's called Truth to Tell, The Gospel is Public Truth. It was uh, written in 91. So he wrote this three years before No Place for Truth by Wells. One of the things that Newbigin was saying, in order to recover the West, we have to affirm the truth of the gospel as public truth. 
We can no longer hold to this idea of private belief only. If the gospel is true, it's not just true in the four walls of the church, it's true everywhere. Right. And we have to be willing to say that and we have to be willing to share that publicly right. and to stand on it. And so at the beginning of this book in his introduction where he's talking about evangelism, you know, a lot of church growth movement concerns, people who are interested in in-church growth or in-church vitalization or revitalization. There's a lot of focus on evangelism. And he he appreciates the role of evangelism, but he sees that there's a problem in our understanding about evangelism. He says it, the problem is when we equate evangelism with revival, which is a return to values that have been forgotten and need to be reaffirmed. So what he's saying is, a lot of times the church wants to go out and works of evangelism for church growth revitalization to bring people back to remembrance of something. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not the landscape we're living in. Evangelism isn't gonna work if it's just bringing people back the things that they had forgotten. He says, it is not so often acknowledged that evangelism means calling people to believe something which is radically different from what is normally accepted as public truth and that it calls for a conversion, not only of the heart and will, but of the mind. He's saying, you have to assert truth. You have to affirm truth. You have to be able to speak boldly in the public sector, in the public sphere, mm -hmm. the gospel as public truth. It's not just a call to remember, it's reasserting something that people are ignorant of. A serious commitment to evangelism, Newbegin goes on to say, to the telling of the story which the church is sent to tell, means a radical questioning of the reigning assumptions of public life. And it is to affirm the gospel not only as an invitation to private and personal decision, but as public truth, which ought to be acknowledged as true for the whole of the life of society. The gospel must be affirmed as public truth for the sake of the culture, for the sake of society. Right. Basically what Newbegin is saying is the church needs to come back to its role as mediator. Right. Phones, televisions, internet, computers, they're doing all the mediating. Right. And the church has, has absconded its uh, responsibility to be truth tellers. Right. Not only have we failed to do that, but in our absence of doing that, more and more freedoms are being taken away. And now it's becoming increasingly harder to even have a platform or a place by which we can speak the truth. And that's why the the one case that we're looking at remind us uh, cheeky cheeky. What's his last name? Uh, it's impossible, it's impossible to pronounce. <laughs> Cheeky's. Uh, he's, he's it's an African name. Uh, he's a U.S. citizen. He was a student at Gwinnett College in Georgia, whose ability to share the gospel was shut down by campus officials. The case was taken up by the Alliance for Defending Freedom, which is a legal organization that upholds Christian values. Right. In this case, uh, religious freedom, the ability to, to speak yeah. truth to power. Right. And so Cheeky was trying to share the gospel right. on his campus. Right. And Cheeky was somebody who affirms the truth of the gospel as a public truth. And he was prohibited from doing so. And so the Alliance for Defending Freedom took up the case and went to the Supreme Court as the, you know our, our conversation with the ADF will show. Right. In a world where there's increasing hostility, Christians must rely upon uh, legal defense 
uh, and that comes from organizations like the ADF that provide it, uh, praise the Lord. And in this case, it was also a student of Grove City College who got a legal degree and is on the staff of ADF yeah. Yeah. and had defended that case. Yeah. What I appreciate so much about Cheeky's story, though we don't hear it so much in our conversation with the ADF, but he was one who was committed to the proposition that the gospel is public truth. He shared it and he, he was willing to endure the cost of that. Yeah. To be a Christian is to take up your cross, die to yourself and follow him. We as a church and the church, if we're gonna ever prove David Wells wrong, then we have to take up a word that is compassionate, but clear in its proclamation of the truth. Yeah. And to say so publicly that Jesus Christ is the King, he died, life is found in him, and trusting in his death and his resurrection, and he is calling you to bend your knee in obedience to him. To be a disciple is to learn to obey all that he has taught us. Yeah. And that isn't always easy or comfortable. But if we fail to, to say that publicly, if we fail to share that like Cheeky did, I don't think there's any immediate hope for the future of our country, of our society. Nor should there be. Right. I mean, I'm glad that he went to the Supreme Court and won, but it doesn't represent actually the years that it took for that to be adjudicated, for him to be vindicated. Five years. Five years. Five years. But for five years, they stayed the course because they were committed to the proposition that the gospel is a public truth and needs to be shared so. And I think his, his story was compelling because it demonstrated the cost of discipleship, which in this environment is something Christians in the United States need yeah. to be more cognizant of. Right. We've got... There is a cost to discipleship. Right. Increasingly. There hasn't been in our tradition. Right. Because it was a dominant Judeo-Christian culture. Yeah. It is no longer that. It's post-Christian. And so the the question then is, how then shall we live right. in an environment and world that is post-Christian? A lot of this goes back to Francis Schaeffer in our tradition, you sure. know, who was also asking the question, how then shall we live? So the church has a tradition, has a history in these kinds of things. But the last generation with the church growth movement, we were able to grow such large churches, but have such little tolerance for sacrifice, for suffering, for the cost that comes with, with speaking the truth with grace, boldly, but clearly and compassionately, but unwaveringly. We're able to have churches with such numbers because it's a gospel that doesn't require you anything. Mm -hmm. and, and it's as if the church, we have to constantly go back, go back to John's gospel. And remember, Jesus was really good at gathering crowds too. After he fed the 5,000, they wanted to make him the king. You, you need to be our king. This was the most amazing miracle we've ever seen. We're all satisfied. This looks like a lot of prosperity. This looks, looks like a lot of good things for us. You should be king. And that's when Jesus says, well, this is what it takes for you to follow after me. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're going, what are you talking about? That sounds, that sounds ghoulish. Rough. Yeah, that sounds ghoulish. That that sounds costly. And the crowds dispersed. All that were left were the disciples. And Jesus says, do you want to go after them? And Peter, who may be beyond the horizon of his own understanding, said, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Yeah. Those words of eternal life, they are not always a popular word, mm -hmm. but they are a public word. And they have to be shared publicly. 
to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. That Jesus is king. Life is only found in him, found in his sacrifice, found in his death, found in his resurrection. And Jesus is the forerunner. So he has gone through the death and the resurrection. We're called to follow after him, and, and we're at the death stage. We're not at the resurrection stage. Right. So getting into these issues, spending time on our podcast to share this with our congregation and with our wider audience is important and timely. We've got to decide what kind of a, and when I say church, I mean capital C church, we want to be. Do we want to be a church that tickles ears and can boast numbers and attract a certain following because it's a cheap grace? Or do we want to ask people into the truth and invite them into a life of truth telling that will be hard, but will be powerful and effective and culture building and can produce life. And eternal. And eternal. And right. lasting. And lasting, right. Yeah. I mean, we're at the fulcrum. And as for me and, and my house, and I, I think for our church, I want to go by way of, it's a narrow road, it's a hard road, but it's the right road and it's a good road. Amen, brother. Travis, good to see you this morning. Welcome to the Scattered Seeds podcast. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for being a guest. Just give us a quick bio of how you came from Grove City. What year did you graduate there? I graduated there in 2002 and then again in 2003. So you got two degrees? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. What were they in? One in math and one in history, or as I like to say, academic schizophrenia. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. And then you went to law school, obviously. Where did you go to law school? Yes, sir. After graduating from Grove City, I had the good fortune to go to Washington Lee University Law School in Washington, Virginia. What sparked your interest in the field that you've developed uh, your legal work in, which is defending academic freedom? Oh, I'm a history nut turned constitutional law nut. Ever since I was a little kid, I loved U.S. history. And then in middle school or thereabouts, David Barton came through the town where I was living at the time and talked about the biblical heritage that we have and the Christian heritage that our founding fathers established in this country and the biblical foundation for the many freedoms that we enjoy. And that turned my interest in the direction of constitutional law and defending those liberties. So even before I went to law school, I was hoping to do constitutional law. And then in the mid-1990s, this would also be while I was in high school, I was listening to the radio one day when Dr. Dobson interviewed a gentleman named Alan Sears. And they announced the founding of this new legal organization, then known as Alliance Defense Fund. And I was impressed by Alan's calm confidence and his insistence upon victory in this area and defending the right to keep the door open for the spread of the gospel. So when I was in law school, I took the opportunity to apply for Alliance Defending Freedom's uh, Blackstone Legal Fellowship. And they took me, and that then led to me applying to work for ADF the fall of my third year of law school. Just give us a quick overview, if you would, of your faith background. I became a Christian back when I was in elementary school through the influence of my mother developed a saving faith in Jesus Christ back then, and uh, the Lord's been discipling me and growing me ever okay. since. You're from Texas, you said? I was at the time I was listening to Dr. Dobson interview Alan Sears. Okay. My dad was in the Air Force, and so we were we moved around a bit. Okay. Do you still stay connected with, uh, is it not Bartram? Or... David Barton? 
Yeah, David Barton. I actually had the opportunity of hosting him at Washington and Lee Law School years ago as a speaker um, yeah. to, to come in and share a slightly different view of the First Amendment with folks at law school, <laughs> which was a very fun experience. I'm sure it was. I'm sure you're scraping brain matter off the walls after that one. <laughs> so... Give us an overview of the cases that you've had some recent work in, success, great success in. One I call it Cheeky. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation of his first name because I, I can't possibly pronounce his last name, but I'm sure you can. So could you pronounce it for us? Is it Cheeky? Yes. It's the most unpronounceable name in all of Anglo-American law. Right. The, uh, <laughs> that must have made it difficult in, in court. <laughs> we represent uh, a young man named Chike Uzabunim. Chike Uzabunim. Uzabunim. Yes. Uzabunim. Okay. Chike. And, and the lead defendant in that case is equally unpronounceable, uh, Prashevsky. So Uzabunim versus Prashevsky, the most unpronounceable court case in all of Anglo American law. <laughs> That's good. That's a good distinction to have, I suppose. <laughs> so Chike, I'll call him Chike. Yes. You can give us an overview in a minute. Where is he originally from? His family is from West Africa, if I remember correctly. Okay. But he was born here and, and, and raised here. Yeah. Yeah. His parents came to the U.S. shortly before he and his siblings were born. He and his siblings were born here. You won an incredible decision at the United States Supreme Court. It was eight to one victory, which... The one dissent was John Roberts. I, I know you can't comment on that, but <laughs> I can. Incredibly, it was John Roberts. So those kind of decisions are seldom won at the Supreme Court. So four liberals and four conservatives voted for you and John Roberts dissented. But it was an eight to one victory, which doesn't happen much anymore in the court. So tell us a little bit about the background of that case. Yeah, Chike Uzabunim was standing outside on campus here at Georgia Burnett College. This, this campus is actually about five minutes from my office. Uh, so this, this case strikes very close to home in a number of different ways. But he was standing outside trying to share his faith on campus with fellow students back in 2016. And college officials repeatedly stopped him. The first time they stopped him, they said that he was, he was not standing inside one of the two tiny speech zones on campus where the college allowed students to exercise their First Amendment rights. Now, you have to understand these speech zones are minuscule. They represent literally 0.0015% of campus. And to put that in terms that non-math majors can understand, that's um, if the entire campus were the size of a football field, both of these speech zones would be the size of a piece of notebook paper. Okay. So the vast... So in other words, they don't want people to share their faith. (laughs) They are quarantining free speech on campus uh, to an extreme degree. Yeah. But Chike actually... Even tighter than COVID. Exactly. Uh, And this was Uh, pre-COVID. But Chike was trying to follow the rules. And so he actually reserved one of the speech zones. And these things were only open like 10% of the week. So not only was it small in space, it was also small in time. But Chike reserved one of the speech zones, went to the speech zone at the appropriate time, started to share his faith again. And this time campus cops came and shut him down a second time. And they told him that somebody had complained. And because somebody had complained, he had thus run afoul of the campus speech code. 
which was in the student code of conduct and said that you could not say anything that disturbs the peace and or comfort of persons. So you can, you can imagine, especially in our hypersensitive era, how tight of a control that is disturbing someone's comfort. And the absurd thing about all of this is that the First Amendment exists precisely to protect our right to say things that other people don't want to hear because popular speech doesn't need any protection. We sued on his behalf and the college changed their policies and tried to get the case kicked out of court saying, hey, move along, nothing to see here. Mm -hmm. Which was the basis, I like reading legal opinions too, and that was the basis of Justice Roberts's dissent. He said it's moot because they had changed their policies, which I thought was ridiculous, just just it is for, ridiculous for the record. Because it's ridiculous because they had actually violated his rights on those two instances and they hadn't done anything to fix it. Right. So we, we have a real constitutional violation and the government hasn't done anything to remedy it. And the courts are ready to say, move along, nothing to see here. In effect, giving the school a free pass right. for violating a right that's supposed to be priceless. Right. But the 11th Circuit, the district court in the 11th Circuit gave the school a free pass. And so that was the question that went up to the Supreme Court was, does the government get a free pass when it violates someone's constitutional rights? And thankfully, eight justices said no. Of course not. I I couldn't imagine they, well, you never know what will come out of courts these days, but uh, praise the Lord that there was some rationality there. Yes. It was a great opinion from Justice Thomas tracking the long history of individuals' rights to hold the government accountable, which is something that's unique to the Anglo-American legal tradition, is the notion that a private citizen can actually hold the government accountable for violating the law for the legal system. That's the tradition that should not lightly be discarded. And fortunately, the Supreme Court reaffirmed it and said, no, that that continues to be the case. If the government violates your rights, it can be held accountable for doing so. The Constitution exists to protect the rights of the individual, not the other way around. Exactly. I didn't go to law school, but I know that much. <laughs> what have been some of the repercussions of the victory in the case, as you've observed them? Well, the, the repercussions are going to be far-reaching. In fact, that's why we had such a, a groundswell of support for GK. I mean, th- this case actually, if I recall correctly, it, it generated at least 22 amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs, and these were from a wide swath of people who don't normally support Alliance Defending Freedom when it's at the Supreme Court. I mean, ACLU follows an amicus brief on Chike's behalf. Wow. American Humanist Association followed an amicus brief on his behalf. The whole reason for this was because they recognized that it's imperative that the government be held accountable when it violates people's rights, regardless of what those rights are. Right. And so this was one of these cases that sort of united a vast ideological spectrum. And you could even see that then in the in the Supreme Court decision, when you had four liberals and four conservatives joining together for an eight to one opinion, recognizing that the government has to be held accountable, government officials have to be held accountable to make sure that our freedoms remain respected and cherished. Yeah. Where were you when you heard the news that you won eight one? I was sitting in this chair right here in my office in Georgia. <laughs> okay. And did you? Yes, indeed. How many cases have you been involved with that got to the Supreme Court? This is my first case to get to the yeah. Supreme Court. So right. this was a rare thing. Right. This is a very rare thing. Uh, this was a very, a very sweet victory and a, a sweet vindication for our client because you think about it, he had this thing had arisen in 2016. The district court had dismissed our case out of hand. 
The 11th Circuit had ruled three to zero against us. And here was the long shot going to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court takes the case and then reverses eight to one. That right there was was vindication for Chike and his faithfulness in the intervening four plus years that the highest court in the land not only took his case, but ruled in his favor, saying that the government can't just be allowed to get away with things when they violate his rights. That was the other thing that was ridiculous about, I don't normally like to call the logic of the Chief Justice of the United States into question, but he said it was moot, and it was moot because he was no longer a student. Well, of course he's not a student. For a case to get to the Supreme Court, it takes years. It does. There's few other instances where somebody could actually inflict injury on someone and then pretend like it never happened. I mean, you think about that car crash, other things where there's injury. Mm -hmm. You can't just say, well, I've changed my behavior going forward, and therefore I don't have to deal with the actual victim that was harmed. That's the whole rationale here is that these nominal damages recognize something that's supposed to be priceless, the violation of a legal right. That violation actually occurred to Chike at least twice. The government can't pretend like it can just sort of airbrush that from history and move on. And that's what the Supreme Court essentially said in that eight to one opinion. Right. Has the school changed any of its policies and practices as a result of the ruling? This college is still assessing the aftermath of the Supreme Court decision, and we're still figuring out exactly where the case is going to go from here, whether the college is going to settle the case and as we move on, or whether it's going to continue to resist Chike's efforts to achieve justice. So we'll see in the coming weeks and months what the uh, what the college decides to do. The ball's kind of in their court at this moment. So they could continue to resist. What do you mean there? Oh, there's an, any number of ways. I mean, the, the case, it was not a final victory at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court just said that the, the lower courts were wrong to dismiss the case out of hand. Mm-hmm. And so now the case goes back to the district court for further legal proceedings. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the college could decide to pursue other avenues to, you know, either try to get the case kicked out again, or we could go into discovery. There's an, any number of ways that this could go, um, and that's why it's going to be sort of up to the college to decide whether it wants to continue to litigate mm-hmm. this case, or whether it wants to recognize that its officials messed up and they just need to settle this thing and, and get it done. So yeah. you're still very much on the case. So to speak. Oh, we're very much on the case. I'll be dealing yeah. with it a little yeah. bit later this afternoon. Okay. Huh. So this isn't a settled matter. The case is not over and done. It was a tremendous victory at the Supreme Court, uh, and it established a very important principle that will benefit not just Chike, but countless other civil rights plaintiffs, both you know in ADF cases and, and in, the, in the country at large. But the case is not over. We're still litigating the, the, the case, and we'll see where it goes. What's been your communication with Chike since the notice of the Supreme Court victory? Well, as you can imagine, calling a client to inform him that eight justices had just ruled in his favor was a very fun phone call. (laughs) Um, It was especially gratifying to hear his very heartfelt praise the Lord that after two courts had ruled against him, you know, he had hung in there for all these years, that eight justices had ruled in his favor and had established this very helpful, incredibly critical legal precedent going forward. Yeah. We're going to see where this thing continues to go, and the Lord's going to continue to use GK to spread the gospel both at George Gwinnett College and elsewhere yeah. throughout the country. What's GK doing now, now that he's he's graduated from, from the college, correct? He's graduated, and he has been uh, very active in evangelizing all around the country. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to keep track of all the different places he's been. Uh, mm-hmm. He's most recently up in New England, and then often evangelizing on college campuses where he can go and 
and speak and just converse with college students about uh, the critical issues of the day and use that as a springboard to share his faith. Yeah, mm. we'll probably hear him on Dennis Prager at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> I'm wondering if you could share with us, and this is a personal curiosity, but I think it could be a real benefit to our to our listeners who are wanting to stay faithful in uh, trying times such as these. It wasn't immediately obvious to me that, that this was over, I, I, or that it wasn't over. I thought that the Supreme Court... Yeah, I wasn't aware of that either. Right. And that this has been several years in the making, which is the point that uh, Tom was making relative to Chief Justice Roberts and his uh, dissenting opinion. You've had to stay with this for a number of years, and who knows how many more years ahead. You've had to stay with it in overcoming significant adversity, loss after loss after loss in terms of the lower courts, and then enjoying vindication on Supreme Court. What is it internally that keeps you going to pursue the truth and to pursue that which is right in the midst of such difficult odds? Obviously, it's your job, but it's got to be more than just your job. There's something I'm sure that's driving you. What, what is that? There's many different answers to that question, but one of the things that inspires me is the faithfulness of our clients. I mean, it's, it's one thing for an attorney to stick with the case over the long haul and to pursue establishing protections for freedom on campus that are going to have uh, cultural impacts in a much broader way. But it's another thing for these clients. I mean, you think about Chike, four years plus hanging in there. You think about some of the professors that we've represented here at ADF. We had a case several years ago where a professor, a Christian professor, was denied a promotion at his university because of his Christian and conservative beliefs. That case lasted seven years, mm. including an appeal to the Fourth Circuit. And for every day during those seven years, obviously with the exception of summer breaks, this is a professor after all, but he went to work with the people who he was suing and the people who had denied him that promotion and who hated his guts. Mm. And he stuck it out. And the same thing is true of uh, a professor we're representing right now of Shawnee State University who was punished for simply declining to refer to a male student as mm. a female. That's the Merriweather case, right? Yeah, that's the Dr. Merriweather case. And, right. and he has continued to go to work every day with the very people who punished him for simply expressing his views. Yeah, And these folks have had to learn in a way, I've had to learn it too, but these folks have had to learn in a much more personal way that the discipline of just sticking with it and enduring the hardship of an initial judicial setback, an initial loss, and then have had the blessing of seeing the Lord turn that loss into a victory that has much more far-reaching impact uh, than they could have ever imagined. Only the Lord could work like that and turn a loss into a victory that actually ends up establishing protections that benefit far more people and reach far further than, than even an initial victory would have done. Sounds mm. just like the gospel, a loss that uh, ultimately yeah. leads to a victory that ensures mm. protection. That's what I was thinking. That's the gospel in a nutshell. So I'm assuming that things like this have, have not only challenged, but inspired and strengthened your faith as well as your your legal stick-to-itiveness. Indeed. These kind of cases continue to show that ultimately what's going on in our country is a spiritual conflict. That's why it's so important to have folks around us who are not just not just supporting us, you know, with encouragement, but also supporting us with prayer because you want know, to stand in front of judges. It's ultimately what's going on behind the scenes is a spiritual conflict, and that has to be uh, bathed in prayer in order for yeah. us to have any success. 
Were you the attorney that was making the pleading before the Supreme Court? No, sir. I uh, I was on the team and it right. helped with much of the briefing and helped litigate the case at the lower court levels. Our general counsel, Kristen Wagner, was the one right. that actually made the arguments before the Supreme Court justices back right. in January. Right. That's what I thought of, but I, I just wanted to clarify that. I like to joke that my main contribution to the case was losing at the district court, losing at the 11th Circuit, <laughs> set up the victory at the Supreme Court. Way to go, Travis. <laughs> You're, you're the uh, the bad news section of the gospel. <laughs> you need yes. the bad news to get to the good news. <laughs> well, you did it well. Yeah. <laughs> the Lord used it. The Lord used yeah. it. <laughs> right. Uh, but you were there the day that the pleading occurred. Oh, yes. I was yeah, there yeah. in the room when Chris yeah. made the arguments before the Supreme so Court. So just describe that for listeners that have not been to the United States Supreme Court and been inside during a pleading of a case. What's that like? Well, it was a very unique experience for us in January because the court right now, and it, it, being in the courtroom is a very, very grand experience. The red curtains, the, the marble columns, the justices all coming in in unison and so forth. But none of that was present when we argued in January because the court right now is operating under COVID protocols. Oh, that's right. That's and right. so we we were actually arguing at the Supreme Court from Kristen's office at ADF's headquarters in Arizona over the phone. And so it was a completely different scenario. Normally, when you argue at the Supreme Court, you get maybe a couple of seconds of an opening statement before a justice jumps in and interrupts you. And then after that, it's just question after question after question after question from, from all the different justices. But with... Under the COVID protocols, it's much more regimented. Each justice has a certain number of minutes where he or she can ask questions, and then you, then it moves on to the next justice. Mm-hmm. You have a, a you get to have an uninterrupted opening statement and so forth. So it was a much different environment back in January than it would be normally. But it was okay. it was still very interesting to hear the different questions. From the different justices and the different perspectives that each of them brought to this case. Yeah. How did Grove City prepare you, Travis, for the work you're doing now? The Lord used Grove City in a very instrumental way uh, as far as solidifying my worldview and helping equip me to give a defense of biblical values and biblical justification for our freedoms and the culture at large. I can think of many different professors who played a role in equipping me for the challenges of law school. Uh, many of them by giving very, very difficult tests and exams, but also the the mentorship and the friendships that, that still endure, even all these years after graduation. So uh, Grove City is a very special place in my heart. Um, Lord used it in a very special way in my life. And actually, I've had several siblings that, are, that have gone to Grove City and one that's still there. So it's, we're still, I still stay in touch. <laughs> are you the oldest in your family? Yes, sir. I had a feeling of that. <laughs> <laughs> You strike me as as, as the porn. eldest, <laughs> the firstborn. It slips out every now and again. <laughs> you blaze the trail. That's fantastic. Yeah. Mm. Any other lawyers uh, in the making in your family? Not so far. Not so far. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about the details on the Merriweather case. You mentioned it before. Yes, the Professor Merriweather case uh, was a case that just came through from the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, another tremendous victory for uh, defending freedom and truth on campus. Professor Merriweather is a philosophy professor at Shawnee State University. And it's in Ohio, right? Yes, sir. It's in Southern Ohio. 
And he was teaching a political philosophy class when a student raised his hand, a male student, and uh, Dr. Merriweather responded with the typical, yes, sir. And afterwards, the student approached him, demanded that Dr. Merriweather refer to him as a woman because he claimed to identify as such. And when Dr. Merriweather respectfully declined to do that, the student got belligerent and threatened to get Dr. Merriweather fired. Dr. Merriweather responded to this by offering an accommodation. He says, look, I'll, I'll refer to you by your, whichever name you want me to call you. First name, last name, preferred name, whatever. And I'll just drop the pronouns when, when addressing you. And that will, that way, I'm not going to say something that bothers you, but I'm also not going to be forced to say something that uh, violates my conscience. And initially, the university went along with this idea as sort of a win-win situation. But then the student continued to complain and the university decided that that wasn't good enough. And so it actually punished Dr. Merriweather for not using the student's preferred pronoun. We actually went through an internal appeal process at the university, tried to get that punishment rescinded. The university dug in its heels and refused to budge at all, refused to offer him any accommodation that would allow him to speak consistent with his conscience. And so we then filed a lawsuit. And in response to that, the university actually made arguments that would have stripped all professors of all free speech rights on campus altogether. And the district court actually went along with that, sadly. Uh, so we appealed to the Sixth Circuit and the Sixth Circuit just ruled in Dr. Merriweather's favor, saying that the college had violated his rights as a, as a professor, his First Amendment free speech rights and religious freedom rights. And so uh, this is another case that's going to continue, but a tremendous victory establishing that, reestablishing the very fundamental principle that universities are supposed to be a marketplace of ideas and not an assembly line for one type of thought. Mm-hmm. Have the defendants... Uh, appealed that to the Supreme Court, or they haven't indicated yet what their intentions are? It's still too early to know what their intentions are going forward. We hope, we hope that the university will come to its senses and, and try to and settle this case quickly. Yeah. But we'll just, we'll see. Uh, yeah. But the notion that, that the university can somehow force a professor to say things that the professor doesn't believe is outrageous, and it goes against the very, you know, fundamental principles of the First Amendment. That's, that's what, what the Sixth Circuit upheld. What's the larger context that we're living in right now in terms of academic freedoms? Because that's, you know, that's what you do in your uh, specialty at ADF. To me, it's extraordinary some of the cases that are cropping up right now. What do you make of this? I mean, you were a student of history. We're in a unique time. It seems like COVID in some respects has exacerbated many of these things because And I was reading in the Wall Street Journal just last week that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out in California, San Francisco, five times the Supreme Court has overruled the Ninth Circuit on verdicts that restricted religious liberty, worship. They basically singled out worship and said you can't worship in a church. So COVID has clearly exacerbated this this, uh, situation, but... What in the heck is going on in the United States of America right now? Well, what's interesting is that when we're talking about colleges and universities, there has been a persistent, continual desire to silence First Amendment freedoms for decades now. And this this started many, many years ago with the rise of the speech code movement and this notion that the university can somehow silence speech that it deems to be uncivil. What would you date the beginning of that, Travis? 
When was the speech code movement? Uh... I don't know that I can put a date on it, but it would have started at least in the 1990s, if not before, maybe yeah. in the 1980s, 70s or 80s. I can't remember exactly when. Yeah. But this notion that gov- that the, that a university must police speech that it deems to be uncivil or harmful or somehow offensive, and that it can it can single out those kinds of speech and silence them or restrict them. That became a mentality that pervade, that has pervaded higher education ever since. So I mean, there's example, a book that Nate I know is familiar with. I haven't read it, but The Coddling of the American Mind, you're probably familiar with it. And, and I used to teach at a university level. There seems to have been a progression in this notion that a university is a place not where your ideas are challenged, but where your ideas are somehow protected, that you are... Uh, you're you'd, you're to be cocooned from that which you dislike. Uh, it, it's fairly anathema. Only if you hold the approved set of ideas. Right, kind of anathema to what a university education traditionally was. I guess there are large cultural forces that explain all these things. You know, Carl Truman has written an excellent book recently. He's a professor, of course, at your your distinguished alma mater on this subject, but. And from a legal perspective, it just seems peculiar. It gives you work, so it's good. (laughs) There is job security. But historically, you must scratch your head sometimes and say, what is this about? What's interesting about all this, though, is that if you track like the speech code movement and then its its current uh, mutations, whenever these things have been challenged in court, they have almost always failed. So you have the speech codes of the 1980s, 1990s, and so on. Those would fail whenever they were challenged in a, in a federal court. You have efforts from universities to try to quarantine speech into certain small, tiny areas on campus, speech zones. Those, again, fail almost every time, if not every time they are challenged in court. So none of these threats to free speech succeed when they are challenged, but there is still this persistent desire from university administrators to try to silence ideas. You see that with the Dr. Merriweather case, they try to silence ideas within faculty. You see it with the Chike Uzubunin case where college administrators are trying to silence ideas from being expressed by students. And then you see, obviously, around us uh, more and more in our current day, the rise of the cancel culture movement where some students, sort of a mob of students, are often demanding that certain ideas be silenced. Mm-hmm. What folks need to understand Often it's it's easy for folks to look at this sort of thing and, and get discouraged and, and think that our side can't win. But folks like Chike Uzabunim and Dr. Merriweather are uh, ample testimony, ample proof of the fact that when God's people take a stand and stand up for liberty, stand up for truth, even in an environment as hostile to both as the university, good things can happen. Obviously, I can't guarantee victory in every case. No good lawyer would. But Chike and Dr. Merriweather and other of our ADF clients have stood in there for the long haul and have seen victory in the end, which is proof that when you take a stand and you're faithful, God will often be faithful and provide victory in the end here. And that these these big cultural movements can be resisted and footholds can be established for liberty that are sorely, sorely needed. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar, Travis, with Roger Ayer's recent book, uh, Live Not By Lies? I've heard the title. I haven't had a chance yeah. to read it. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. And um, I think very, 
very resonant with a lot of what you just said in the mission that you're on with the Alliance of Defending Freedom, the necessity to resist lies and insist on truth, even in the midst of persecution or, or things that are inconvenient. Well, it's that very desire that is what motivated Dr. Merriweather to make his stand. I mean, folks will often try to, to denigrate that case. Oh, you know, why are you making such a big deal about pronouns? But his whole point is that it's, it's not about a pronoun. It's about what that pronoun means. It's, it's about endorsing an ideology. And here we're talking, in his case, when we're talking about gender dysphoria and transgenderism and that sort of thing, you're talking about an ideology that often has very dramatic impacts, negative impacts upon very hurting and vulnerable people. And so he's not about to stand up and endorse what he knows to be false because falsehoods have consequences and false ideas, in this case, hurt real people. And so it's not a compassionate thing for him to, to just go along with the flow on campus. What the, those folks need, the truly loving thing, is to hear the truth about how God created them and how he intended for them to be. And standing athwart that dominant tide on campus that is the compassionate and loving thing to do. And that's what motivated him to, to make sure that he's not endorsing lies on that, on that campus. Yeah. You said at the beginning, Travis, that you recognize the spiritual dimensions that are at work in all of these things. And that when you virtually entered into the, the hallowed halls of the Supreme Court, you were entering also into a, a dimension in which, in which you were engaging with things that were bigger than just the court as well. And so I wondered if you might share a little bit personally and autobiographically, if you can, how you recognize your place not only in the Alliance of Defending Freedom, but the, the unique place that God has put you in his kingdom in terms of engaging culture, engaging legal cases, and, and how God has been using you for his kingdom. Do you, have you reflected on that? Do you have any thoughts about that and the way in which the Lord has strategically placed you and scattered you into the public dimension? I don't know that I've thought about it perhaps as, as much as I should. But it is somewhat amazing to me to think, you know, that high school kid out in West Texas listening to a radio broadcast would later end up working for the very organization whose creation was being announced at that time, Alliance Defending Freedom. And it is awe-inspiring to think that the Lord has given me the opportunity to work on cases that have such a far-ranging impact. You know, tons and tons of people go to law school. Even folks that I knew back when I was in law school would say the odds of me actually getting to work in constitutional law were very, very slim. Uh, but the Lord opened that door and allowed and gave me the privilege of working for Alliance Defending Freedom and the, uh, the opportunity to serve him in this capacity. And the opportunity to get to defend folks like Chike, who was out there trying to spread the gospel on his campus and win folks to the Lord and share the good news of salvation. Or to represent folks like Dr. Merriweather, who's simply trying to, to tell people the truth on his campus. And the opportunity to stand beside them and be an advocate for them is an awe-inspiring privilege, um, a great responsibility. Um, and it's, it's neat to be in a position to see the Lord work through the legal system to vindicate folks who have been so faithful. Well, we're grateful that you're there, that you're, you're standing guard and, and doing that kind of work. Yeah. We, we need Christians salted into the culture that way and into our into the, the political dimension and sense of the, the public dimension. We're glad that you're there. Yeah. To look at it historically, well, I mean, as a student of history, I am too. I don't think there is a more important time in the history of the United States to be doing the kind of work that you're doing. 
Well, you're very, you're very kind. Um, you know, this is the time that the Lord has placed us in, and so this is the time that He has given us to be faithful and to carry that torch forward. So, it's just a privilege to be able to do it in this context and, and alongside such uh, wonderful people as Dr. Merriweather and Chike Uzabinim. Well, thank you, Travis. Thank you for the work you're doing. Uh, God bless you, and we wish you victory. Yes. Thank, thank you very much. God okay. bless you. Thank you all kindly. Yeah, thanks, Travis. Mm-hmm. The establishment of our new government seemed to be the last great experiment for promoting human happiness. George Washington. When our country was founded, it was something wholly new. While we were initially created as a series of colonies, nationally we were founded on the principles of personal freedoms. We were promised the right to practice our faith with no limitations by any outside entity represented by the government. We were promised that our thoughts and words would not be censored. But we live in a nation where we, like Chike, are having to fight for that right more and more. But that's why God has lifted up people like Travis to help in the fight. Having to defend our faith against the world at large may be a new concept for many Americans, and many of us feel ill-equipped to do so. But the fight isn't new for our faith at large. The Bible tells us to always be ready to have an answer for the hope that lies within us. And Jesus even told his disciples that they would be called before leaders to explain their faith, and that the Holy Spirit would give them the words needed to make their defense. Jesus himself came up against the prevailing leaders of his day, as did his disciples, and arguably every generation of the early church. Governments around the world have tried to stamp out the message of the gospel. And time and time again, brave men and women have had to stand up to defy the culture of fear and silence to speak the truth, even though it could, and oftentimes did, cost them everything, up to and including their lives. The world is growing darker, and fear is growing stronger, but that doesn't mean that we should be afraid. Because we haven't been given the spirit of fear, but one of love, power, and a sound mind. And we've also been given the words of life, and the answers the world so desperately needs. The world needs Jesus, and his church has been given the mighty and awesome privilege to share the reality of who he is, and what he has done for all of us, and what a life of following him means and costs. And yes, there is a cost to sharing the gospel, but silence has its price as well. Ultimately, it comes down to a choice. Whom will you serve? Jesus said you can only have one master. Will it be the world, or will it be its savior? Can you say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? If you want to know more about a relationship with Jesus, how to share the gospel, or even how to defend your right to do so, you can contact our show at info at com. That's I-N-F-O at T-H-E-S-C-A-T-T-E-R-E-D-S-E-E-D-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot com. You can also visit our website where you'll find all of our episodes, information about our guests, links to guest ministries, ways to connect with our show, and more. And look in the description of this episode to find a link to the Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Scattered Seeds Podcast. We hope to have you back on we hope to have you back next time on the show where every life has a story. Next time on the Scattered Seeds Podcast. This is a really personal thing for me. I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, but I I remember very distinctly. My dad was talking about how in other parts of the world, pastors were facing persecution because they were speaking the truth when it comes to marriage and sexuality. And I remember as a kid thinking, I don't want that to happen to my dad. And as I grew older and went to college and started feeling led by the Holy Spirit to pursue a career in law, and around that time I learned about Alliance Defending Freedom. 
The Scattered Seeds podcast is brought to you by Beverly Heights Presbyterian Church and our friends at Grove City College, where faith and freedom matter.